And if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to invite them to Ephesians, to turn in them rather. You can invite them, but you probably should turn them. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 10 this morning. If you're using the Bible there in the seat in front of you, that's page 976, help you find it a little more easily. 976. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, We have uh, an exciting passage ahead of us. Uh, This is uh, one where I think it would be just as effective to stand up and just uh, read it five or six times. Uh, And that's just how the the word of of God works. Um, But I also think that there's some things in here that it's helpful to unpack. It's helpful to walk through. It's helpful to, to answer and anticipate some of the questions that we have. Uh, that God is so gracious to us to, to lay out before us his own word. And that as we uh, move through this passage today, that we see Christ's work in the church. Answering in many senses, uh, why are, are we gathered here? Why are, are we here? Um, that's the question that Pastor Steve uh, kicked us off in the sermon with the Ephesians 1. Uh, and he, he said we would put aside the existential question of, of why are we here, uh, and I think this helps us answer that a little bit. So we'll, we'll pick that off, uh, dust it off, and, um, and we'll, we'll see what God has before us. And so uh, we're going to move through this in, in just three parts, uh, just three or four verses at a time, and so we'll start with Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verses 1 through 3. This is what the word of the Lord says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These first three verses here in Ephesians chapter 2 begin to to open the door, if you will, to a, a biblical anthropology. That is, what is man that God would consider them? An answer to, to Psalm 8. As we see this, this answer, it's, it's not necessarily uh, what we often think of Humanity. It's not often what we think of ourselves, but it doesn't make it any less true. But one thing that we should note is that Paul is bringing this to a context and to a community that is once lived in these passions. Having departed in them, now being in Christ, Paul is laying out before the Ephesians our past reality. This is where we were if we are now in Christ. And we'll get to that new life here in a moment, but this is something that I think is worth expounding on to see the prevalence and death that sin has wrought. And begins by saying that the wages of sin's work is death. That we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Sin is kind of a, a churchy word. It's one that gets thrown around in a culture, uh, and it's simply put, is to miss the mark. 
It's to miss the the target here. It is both a fallen state in which Adam and Eve uh, fell and the world was therefore uh, entered into this this fallen state of of sin at large. It's a nature, but it's also these individual sinful acts that you and I commit. That because of this sin, because of this missing of the mark of holiness, that sin has wrought in us a spiritual death. And that even as you or I may uh, have heard or have maybe even said ourselves this kind of phrase, well, uh, I am spiritual, right? It's like, the, oh, do you, are you religious? No, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not really sure what that means in some sense it's unpacked by the individual. There's uh, individual meaning and intention there. Uh, but the reality of this is, is yes, we, we are spiritual. God has created us as spiritual beings, but that spirit is dead. That this is a spiritual death that has brought about in us. And it leads to a, a physical death at some point. That sin has, has fractured our, our state here. But even more than that, this is getting to uh, the other claim that we so often hear and so often say in ourselves. Not that I am spiritual, but instead that I am a good person. I think this is a claim that we, we hear most often uh, or even say of other people. as, oh yeah, but he's a, a good person. Or she is a, a good person. And what we mean by that is, is not this kind of capital G good in the sense that they have merited their salvation, uh, but rather they, they're simply they're, they're nice. <laughs> but it doesn't matter where we are on this kind of scale. It says that if we are a, a good person or a bad person, that the good person and the bad person alike, if they are not in Christ, are both spiritually dead. Warren Wearsby explains it in this way. He says that all lost sinners are dead. The only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. The lost derelict on skin row may be more decayed outwardly than the unsaved society leader, but both are dead in sin, and one corpse cannot be more dead than the other. That this is what we see, that this is the wages of sin's work. There is no making alive that which is now dead. It may have decayed in different ways. It may have been crushed a little more. But dead is dead is dead. And such were we apart from Christ. More than this, it's not just a a statement of our uh, reality, but it's also a statement of our action. That we were walking in darkness. It says that this was the, the death that we wrought that in, which, in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that we were walking in darkness. Even still, it shows that the world continues to walk in step with the spirit of the enemy. That as we follow the patterns of the world, we are following ultimately the patterns of Satan. That the spirit of the enemy, the way, as we read in uh, Proverbs, as Linda read before us, that the way that may seem right to a man can still lead us to death. That this is the way of the world. This is the way uh, that we see and follow on a a pop culture uh, kind of scale, but also in our individual workplaces, the ways that that people respond to the things around us. Those that do not have the hope of Christ, we try to walk in a certain way. As Judges says, we we do what is right in our own eyes. We, We do our best in many ways. But what we see is that is a succumbing 
to the desires of body and mind. This isn't to, to put aside body and mind in the sense that, that we are Gnostics or saying that there is a higher knowledge and that our flesh is the, the problem. We need to be completely spirits and unbound by this world. No, God has created us physically. He has created us in a world and in bodies and in a way that we can live out our faith wholesomely. That Christ himself came in in physical form. That this wasn't a a bad thing, but rather it has been tainted like all things by sin. And from that sin, from that nature, it says that we are living in the passions of that flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The desires of, of body and mind, we don't have to look very far to see. It says that these are following the temptations and the way of the power, or the prince of the power that how does Satan desire to give, give us to, to bend to these desires? It's, it's in fame. It's in power. It's in possessions. It's in satisfaction. But all of this is leading to wrath. This morning I was uh, reading in, in uh, just my Bible plan through Luke 4. Luke 4 is uh, there where uh, Christ has been baptized. He's gone out into the wilderness. It says he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And what happens after the fasting? Prince of the power of the air comes to him and comes to tempt him. Do you remember the things that he asked him? Knowing that Christ has here gone 40 days without food or water, he, he says, hey, maybe you should say to those stones, right, become bread. Right? And Christ says man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every mouth or every word rather out of the mouth of God. He then takes him up onto a high place, the pinnacle uh, there, and he shows him and says all the kingdoms of the world. So not just uh, there in Israel, not just uh, the power of Rome, but he says all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, I'll, I'll give you all of this if you bend to me. And Christ recognizes the authority that's offered there. And he rejects that as well. He's, he's then tempted to throw himself from that high space and, and to uh, show and be shown, rather, that God is going to care for him. That God himself won't let him even strike a foot on a stone, but he would send his angels to save him. Christ says, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. And in easy ways, we we see how the enemy is coming to tempt us, and how many of us would, uh, first of all, just as a carb lover, right, would have just bent on that first temptation, not uh, putting aside the second or third, to lay out there, how many of us, when it says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, how many of us are are so caught up in in the, the... frankly, the idol of our own politics, that we think that everyone else has it wrong. And if we were allowed to make the decisions for this country, if we were allowed to make the decisions for for this world, how much better things would be. Christ was given that opportunity. He he was given the opportunity for political everything, (laughs) for, for political power across the world. And he rejected it. Because he knew that the way of the kingdom does not bend to the power of the prince of the air, but rather to the kingdom of God. That the subversion of this world, the way of this world, will be undone and is being undone through the subversive reality of the gospel. And that third temptation, I think we often kind of go alongside, we, we miss it. It's like, what is, what is Satan here trying to tempt Christ to do? It's walking in darkness, 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And he offers to Christ, throw yourself down so that you can see how God really loves and cares for you. That even our religion, even our relationship with God can be used by the enemy when it is not rightly seated in our hearts. Why? Because as Christ saw, that was putting the Lord to the test. That wasn't about Christ getting God to prove his love for him, getting the Father to prove his love for the Son. Christ sees that and and knows that in eternity past. Instead, what we see is the reality of our past, the reality of the world around us, the reality to which Christ does not bend, but that we have already succumbed to, is death. Death in our religion, death in our power, death even in our desires of flesh, of provision and sustenance. And that would be a horrible, horrible sermon if that's where Paul stopped. But verse 4 shifts. Look at it with me. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen. That we just have a past reality before us that the wages of sin is death, that we were walking in darkness, but God. That we have new life in Christ and that this new life hinges on and is set apart by God's love and mercy. It says here that God is rich in mercy, that it is abundant before him. This is the same word that we see in the Old Testament that we often see described as loving kindness, that this is a covenant faithfulness, this love that is extended to us who are struggling, who are here in death, that we're here suffering, that the wages of sin has wrought this in us, but God Rich in mercy, rich in love, is enough. That his mercy is brought through and because of his emphatic love for us. That God loves you. That this isn't just a trite thing that we throw on a bumper sticker that we say to people or put in our our email signatures that, hey, Jesus loves you. No, 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 you you don't understand that he loves you, that he, he sees you where you are, that because of his great love with which he loved us, that he has redeemed us, that he has made us alive together in Christ. Years ago when I was in, in college, we had a, uh, an apologetics course that is a, a way to understand the, the faiths of others, but, but also to, to give an account, to give an, an argument uh, for the existence of God. And not in a formulated kind of way where it's, oh, if you believe that, here are the magic words that I read, and, and now therefore you, you lose the argument and you have to follow Jesus. But instead to meet people where they are. 
that the people in, in your workplace, the, the family and friends uh, that you have that, that don't know Christ, there, there's not an argument that we can give. There's, there's not an argument that we can make to show them that they're wrong and therefore need to follow Jesus, but rather we can meet them where they are with the objections that they might have, the barriers that they may have. The, they may even have a poor picture of who Christ is or what the gospel is. And one thing that we can't miss is that he is rich in mercy. See, when I was going through that course, we had a, a requirement. It was actually an assignment to meet with someone and have a faith other than ours, to, to have a conversation with them to, to share the gospel effectively, uh, to, to use what we had done in the class in order to, to show this off. I, I met with a person um, who uh, was a, a relatively, I, I think it was more cultural, but uh, of the Jewish faith, and so uh, not having accepted Christ, um, but more so the, the kind of history uh, of his ancestors. And so uh, we, we sat down and we began to move through some of those objections, some of the questions that he had, uh, questions that I had, just trying to meet each other, better understand where we are. As you might expect, eventually, we got to the, the question of mercy. Didn't take long before he said uh, what words you might expect to shut down any conversation, but is God's mercy enough for Adolf Hitler? Here's a man of, of, of Jewish descent who has seen firsthand uh, the tragedy and broken lines in his family tree, knowing people that were killed in the Holocaust. Is God's mercy enough for Hitler? If we rightly understand what this message says, that God is rich in mercy, the answer is always yes. And we may have obvious hang-ups about what that means, what that entails, obvious questions of, of discipleship and of, of what salvation looks like. But there's also the reality in which if his mercy isn't enough for Hitler, then it isn't enough for me. Then it isn't enough for you. That we don't set the terms of God's mercy in the same way that we haven't set the terms of the wages of sin's God is rich in mercy. He is abounding in love. And it should make us uncomfortable. But we should also recognize that that's not its end. It's not just that he loves us, not just that he has mercy towards us, but to the end that he would raise us together. That because of this love and mercy, we have been raised together in Christ that we have been made alive together with. In the Greek, this is a single word, that we are made alive together with Christ. We, we have a, a kind of a tendency to kind of super, I don't know, individualize this. We talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, the, the language that Paul is bringing here to say, uh, this is we, this is us, this is our. 
um, but this is that we are raised together, that our union with Christ determines our resurrection, that this is entered into on an individual level, that our individual faith in Christ is what brings us here, but that when we are brought into that, we are made alive together with Christ. Make reference to our resource library back there. Uh, One of the books there on the, the left, four rows down, five books over uh, there's, there's a little work, a uh, little green work called Life Together uh, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, it's a personal favorite of mine. I try to read it uh, about once a year. Uh, but this is what uh, Bonhoeffer says of, of this uh, Christian community, of, of this alive together withness, if you will. He says, let him who is not in community beware of being alone. If you scorn the fellowship of the brethren, you reject the call of Jesus Christ, and thus your solitude can only be hurtful to you. That we have been raised together and seated with Christ, seated in Christ. That in the past, in the present, in the future, this hope is ours together. That it belongs to the church which Christ has redeemed. That Christ is coming for his bride and that we as individual members are invited to participate in it, to take part in it on an individual level, but that he is coming for us together. This changes and and shifts the way that I see my life in Christ. That this isn't just a a me and Jesus type relationship where I can scorn the, the fellowship and say, good luck everyone, we're all on this on our own. But instead we recognize that we And that we are raised together in order to display the riches of God. Grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. That our salvation declares the glory of God from now and into eternity. This phrase, the praise of his glory. It says that these riches here are immeasurable. That they are beyond what we can see. That they, they go beyond, well beyond what we deserve, well beyond what we need. That they are beyond measure. That this is actually where we get the word hyperbole. That this is not hyperbolic, right? It's not that uh, we can over-describe the riches of God's grace, but rather that we can rightly see and display those riches to the world around us. That we display these riches now in the salvation of our, of our testimony, of our witness to the world around us. We, we give hope to those around us, but also in eternity. This is something uh, that we see long, long into the future long into the future. Like, I think we understand eternity. Long into the future. That future does not end. And that future declares and displays the glory of God. You may have noticed, uh, I'm, I'm just curious, we'll, we'll pause from the spiritual, we'll get right back to it. Uh, show of hands, who is watching the Super Bowl? Okay, that's tonight, by the way, if you're, you're not. Uh, now you know. Um, NFL does not pay me to say that, but that's all right. Um, and we'll just go show of hands. Who thinks that the Chiefs are going to win? Who thinks that the Bucks are going to win? All right, you heard it here first. That's the, the Chiefs by I don't know, six points. Uh, but uh, Super Bowl is almost 
renowned, not for, for the game. In fact, many of you may have just learned right now that it's the Chiefs versus the Bucks, and that's fine. Um, but we also know the Super Bowl for one other thing other than football. What is it? Commercials. That's right. So it's these, these advertisements, uh, this airtime that we see uh, sometimes with great humor, sometimes just pulling at your heartstrings and you're crying in the second quarter. It's just because of, of what they've shown and you probably expect a little bit uh, of that. But we know also the great cost with which those ads come. Uh, this year, and uh, it's kind of been on, on trend for the past few years, a 30-second ad time is $5.5 million for 30 seconds. And what's really interesting about this is it doesn't necessarily, at least, uh, contribute to a short-term payout, meaning they, they pay $5.5 million. They, they don't expect necessarily that if, if it's a Dodge Ram truck that the day after the Super Bowl that they're going to have $5.5 million of sales. In fact, the only time that they see a short-term payoff is for things like movie trailers, uh, rather, what they're recognizing is that this, this payment, this investment, this $5.5 million is, is not a short-term payout, but a long-term one. That it, it's building brand awareness. It's building brand equity. It's, it's not necessarily sales, but in the immediate sense, but there is a larger return on their investment. How much more should we see the cost of Christ's sacrifice? That 5.5 million uh, wouldn't cover it. Uh, tickets to heaven are, are not going to be bought um, at that rate. Uh, that they are only available through the blood of Christ. And that there is an incredible short-term payout. There is a return on the investment in our salvation. But also, as this passage says, there is a long-term return on investment in that we display the riches of God's grace. That God has so invested in us. He has seen us while we were dead in our sins. That he has bought us and redeemed us in Christ. And that this new life in Christ not only redeems us in salvation and hope and in fullness of life. But that for eternity, our lives will testify to the glory of God. That we have been raised together for this end. And that there is new life. And that life does not end. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we've seen our past reality. We've seen our new life in Christ. And now we see the way of Christ's we did not skip over it. We did not forget uh, earlier in verse 5. He, he pauses in his statement. He's saying we've been made alive in Christ. And he pauses to say it is by grace that we have been saved. And now he hits it again in verse 8. For by grace that you have been saved through faith. There are two words uh, that have, have defined in, in many senses uh, the um, Reformation. Uh, 500 plus years ago. Uh, as, as the church uh, in Europe, about 100 years before that, starting in Africa, uh, have redeemed and, and recaptured uh, the heart of scriptures, of, of the heart of, of Christ for his kingdom in these ways. And, and some of the, the terms uh, that uh, we, we've thrown around to, to kind of embody the, the heart of the Reformation uh, or the, the five solas, two of them uh, are seen right here in this passage. 
Uh, and th these are sola gratia and, and sola fide. That is, uh, by grace alone and by faith alone. That is, a, a Reformation came because this had been, uh, in one way, lost by many in the church. That they had begun to heap on works, uh, literal payments, in order to, to secure your spot in the kingdom. But that doesn't happen anymore, right? Instead, we see in this passage, sola Fide, sola gratia, by grace alone, by faith alone, the emphasis of the cause and process of our salvation is grace through faith. It's not out of you. It's not out of me. It's not out of your works or it's not out of my works. And if we think that we have somehow earned salvation, there's a chance that we may have not attained it at all. Why? Because if we have taken hold of it, we recognize that it was by nothing that we've done. But it's by grace alone through faith. Paul is an incredible in, in the way that he builds his arguments. Uh, the book of Romans at large has been, in, has been studied uh, by lawyers in the way that he anticipates questions and objections and gives answers before they are raised. In the same way we see this here, he says, we've been saved by grace through faith, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that any may boast. He's saying that even this faith is not a work on, on our part, but that it is the spirit of God that has given and produced this faith in us. That as we anticipate the, the problems here, the, the those that would say that I'm somehow helping God to achieve this have missed what this grace is. It's not secured by us. It's been secured by Christ, offered to us, surely by the grace of God, surely through faith in him. And then we've been formed for a purpose. The way of Christ's work is not simply that we have been brought in the cause and process of our salvation and grace through faith, but also that we have been brought in for a purpose, that we have been formed to work and to walk. He's saying it's not a result of your works, and we haven't earned this. But in anticipation of your pushback, that doesn't mean that we can just sit here and not do anything. That doesn't mean just, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm set, I'm, I'm good for eternity, I'm going to... Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do whatever I want, I guess. But instead, rather, we see that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. That we are his workmanship, that we are his creation. Jerome says that we are his creation. That means that we live, breathe, understand, and are able to believe because he is the one who made us. Note carefully that he did not say we are his fashioning or his molding, but that we are his creation. Molding starts with the mud of the earth, but creation from the outset is according to the image and likeness of God. That we have been made, that you have been made for his purposes. We have been formed to work and to walk. We are a result of his work for his purposes and that the denial of work is not the dismissal of work. That is to say, we are not saved by our work, but that doesn't mean that we don't follow and respond with work. 
that Christ has wrought a new heart in us. He's turned the heart that was a stone because of sin, the the brokenness and, and tarnished image of God, redeemed by Christ, set forth for new life. And that this new life is in representation and imitation of Christ himself. That God has prepared us to work and walk like Christ in the world as his subversive response to sin. And let's go back to what we saw in verses 1 through 3. What, how does the world work? How does the world walk? It walks like the world. It walks like Satan. It looks, looks for its own power, its own influence, its own fame, its own satisfaction. But we look to Christ and his kingdom. And that in finding Christ, in finding his kingdom, we are therefore bade out inheritors of a greater satisfaction, a greater possession, a greater knownness that we are, are known by God and which is greater than any other fame which we could write or just find here in this world. And then we are made alive in him. The way of Christ's work is that he shows us our past so that when we see our new life, that we live in imitation of Christ. That because God has raised us from the dead by grace, that we are able to glorify him in faithful work. That means wherever you are, wherever you go, you do so as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, as representatives of, Sealed by the Spirit of God to declare His way and work, to show the past reality, and to invite others into this new life. That whatever we do, whether we eat or we drink, that we would do so to the glory of God. Father, we thank you. Lord, that you have raised us from the dead. Lord, that that you have taken fallen and sinful, undeserving, unable. Lord, that you have taken helpless man. Lord, and that you have given us life in Christ. Lord, that through the richness of your love and mercy that you have raised us together to display your riches. Lord, that this isn't by anything that we have done, but surely and and solely by your grace and faith. Lord, that you have brought in us. Lord, show us the ways that you have formed us. Lord, show us the works that you have prepared before us. Lord, that we would walk in them. Lord, show us what faithful work is. Lord, as we better know and imitate the person of Christ. God, we pray these things in the saving name of Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit.